0: Justin Kristoff on the show of acker
1: Merrill. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Great to see you. Thank you for having me. So you got your start in Pennsylvania. Yeah, uh, or as we like to say, Pennsylvania. So uh, out there in the sticks. Uh, grew up there, went to school there and uh, had my first job in the wine business there. And what was that? I was selling wholesale for a small company. But uh, as you Probably many people know Pennsylvania is one of the last bastions of liquor state-run liquor control boards, so everything had to go through the state. So it was. Uh, so that's a blast. That's yeah. good times. It, it, it's quite repressive, uh, e- even by uh, New York and other state standards. Any uh, any words of wisdom for those who are under the yoke of the uh, the government man? Uh, well, it's a short drive to Jersey or Delaware, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they make small steps there to improve it a little bit each year, just to perpetuate the system. So it's a little bit frustrating in that regard. Um, And they were threatening this year to dissolve it. But uh, it seems like uh, with the unions and everything like that, uh, it didn't gain the traction necessary.
0: You got out. You were, you know, you climbed the wall, uh, Checkpoint
1: Charlie, and you made it to the other side. And uh, what happened? Very Berlin style, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's funny you say that. I was going to wear my uh, T-shirt with the uh, Berlin Wall on it today, but uh, it was in the wash. But uh, I used to work at a restaurant with the Berlin Wall outside, like a piece of it. Oh wow!
0: Yeah, in Midtown. Nice. Amazingly, it doesn't draw in visitors. Huh. Like, people aren't like, "Hey, honey, let's go walk by that." Like yeah. you know, it kind of scares people. I think
1: it was so long ago, people don't even know what it was.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look at
1: that graffiti. You know. <laughs> So uh, my first job in New York was with Morell and their auction division, and uh, it was a really um, a baptism by fire, both into New York City and the world of fine wine, and uh, also just the uh, tremendous amount of wine an auction house turns over, uh, cataloging, warehousing, appraising. What year was that? Uh, 2000. And why did you decide to make the move? Well, as I said, Pennsylvania was kind of limiting, and I wanted to expand my horizons, and uh, the West Coast seemed like an even farther jump, and so New York seemed a logical step. Uh, I didn't necessarily want to get into auctions, but uh, that was the first job that seemed to fit, and so I took it and uh, was really appreciative for the opportunity that Nikos, Roberta, and Peter Morel gave me, and uh, really, being a small business, learned uh, everything that you need to do in the wine business uh, A to Z. What was that like in the before September 11th kind of era for auctions? I mean, what was happening? Uh, there was a little bit of uh, hangover from uh, Y2K. Uh, but uh, prices were good, but it was a, a different era. I mean, internet bidding was just starting to come in, and that was like a really fancy thing. And uh, bids were still coming in by fax, and uh, there's a lot of phone bidding during the auction, both of which are kind of uh, dinosaurs now, 13 years later. <laughs> what, was it like a guy standing by the window, like, I see,
0: I think I see a pigeon coming. Hold yeah, on, there's yeah. a
1: bid. Yeah, passenger pigeon or homing <laughs> pigeon. Um, yeah, it was uh, really a different era, and people showed up more at the, at the sales, and uh, – While the wine seemed very expensive for what I was used to, I mean, I I wish I had bought more back then from what little wines I had bought because uh, prices are dramatically different now. What was in the sales room? I think back then it was more Bordeaux and Burgundy, uh, but that was right at the time period where the market was starting to diversify. Um, This was in the shadow of the great 1997 vintage in Italy and the 1998 vintage in Australia, which got a lot of hype from Parker and other people. Uh, So a lot of those wines were reaching three-digit prices and becoming allocated, and people were looking to you know, buy them and then flip them and, you know, make money. And so it was kind of an interesting time seeing the technology come in and then also the product change and diversify. And then some of the traditional products, uh, like the first gross and Romani Conti, go from expensive to very expensive to absurd.
0: <laughs> so it was a small company. So I imagine that you are doing a lot of different things
1: in terms of functions yeah uh uh appraising uh the, the prices uh cataloging the the conditions of the wines um working the the phone bids and other bids in the sales room uh entering the bids in the computer all sorts of glamorous things you know carrying boxes to customers' cars you know the uh, the wine business always comes back to carrying boxes. <laughs> that's what really inspires young people to get into it, I think. Yeah, it's like the nice, phys- nice combination of uh, cerebral and physical activity that uh, you can go... Uh, Inspiring into. young minds. Yeah, exactly.
0: You too could take this to the parking lot. <laughs> Find the keys and put it in the back of the trunk.
1: Exactly. Just don't scratch the leather seats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, how long were you there? Uh, almost three years. And then I moved on to uh, Ackermarill. Uh, which was a little bit uh, bigger operation. And then from there, I moved on after a couple years to Christie's, wanting to see what a big company was like having worked for two small family companies and uh, got a little taste of the art world and a little more taste of the international wine scene, going to uh, Asia and Europe to look at sellers and uh, events like Hospice de bone and vin Expo and uh, also having colleagues from different parts of the world so that was a that was a good experience to to expand some horizons and then it actually got me to uh, go to on uh, primo in Bordeaux in 2007 uh, which was uh, a good experience what was the 7 campaign like it was pretty dreary from a, uh, a merchant point of view and uh, I had a lot of difficulty finding uh, Americans who wanted to go because I was on the heels of 05 and 06. And nobody wanted to go to 07 because they didn't want to, They said, well, we're not really going to be able to sell anything. But uh, I really wanted to go to visit the chateaus, taste the wines. And I thought 07 is the great vintage to taste from a learning point of view because it's it's a tough vintage. So you're going to see which, which terroirs triumph and which winemakers can. Make a good wine when the conditions aren't uh, all in a line, and so I just happened to be while I was working at Christie's at the Morel Wine Bar, uh, right around the corner, and you were there for a drink. Yeah, for a drink with a couple friends, and ran into a German wine merchant and struck up a conversation, and uh, he was going. And I said, oh, I'd like to go. And he's like, oh, there's an extra seat on the bus. So three weeks later, <laughs> I was in uh, the, the short bus with a bunch of Germans uh, driving around the French countryside uh, <laughs> tasting, uh, I don't know, 250 wines that week or whatever we went through. What was that like? I mean, what was the exposure to Bordeaux
0: like at that time?
1: Uh, it was Great for me because uh, I, to taste all these young wines and to taste so many wines side by side, most of my experience on the auction side had been older wines, uh, maybe just a few wines in the tasting, um, maybe more at dinners, but just to taste for barrel samples. And so many of them in a condensed period was really, uh, really eye-opening and uh, actually to... Uh, put uh, uh, a place and a a face to to these wines when so many times they were just uh, a line item on a spreadsheet or a bottle in a box, Uh, it was a, a great experience. Does it take a little bit of palate calibration to go
0: from drinking things that are 10, 15, 20 years old all the time to drinking things that are just about
1: not even released? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so that was a bit of a shock, and it took some getting used to. Um, your, your palate definitely gets calibrated if you're drinking more white wines or more red wines or more young wines or older wines. That was a good problem to have, drinking too much old wine. So, But uh, <laughs> with prices, the way prices have been the last five or six years, <laughs> it was an easy problem to cure. But so 2007, that was kind of an interesting year because it was after the price
0: escalations associated with 05. Yeah. I, as I recall, prices were still somewhat high, but quality wasn't being touted. What What were you thinking in terms of how can I sell these wines or what should I do in the market?
1: I was using it largely as an intellectual exercise. I realized that there would be limited commercial viability uh, selling these wines, but I thought this is a good vintage to go because um, the campaign will be much less crowded. There'll be much less people at each tasting. And, uh, I said, there'll be more. I, I, I uh, a couple of years later I did 2009 and, uh, you know, 2009 was a great vintage and everything tasted pretty good. <laughs> so, I mean, it was hard to make a bad wine in 2009, 2005. So I think I didn't look at it so much from a commercial aspect, but more from, um, just being a wine lover and, um, also using it to calibrate my palate and also to, to see what people can do and, well, it was probably arguably the worst vintage of the last decade. But eventually you segue out of the Bordeaux market. Uh, how did that come about? Uh, ironically, through that on premier trip in 07, um, when you spend a, a week on a bus with a bunch of German wine merchants, you start talking about things. And uh, I said, well, is there any tasting similar to this in Germany? And they said, oh, yeah. In three weeks, there's the uh, Mainzer Weinbors, uh, which is in the city of Mainz just outside of Frankfurt. It's run by the VDP, Association of Wine Growers, all the top guys from the 13 wine growing regions. So you basically have, unlike Bordeaux, where you have to travel around uh, under one roof, about 175 wine growers uh, for a two-day tasting that starts at 9 or 10 and runs till 5 or 6. And you can taste to your heart's content. (laughs) And I actually had a hotel room in that uh, convention center, so it was a very short commute. (laughs) No, No car or short bus required. So you get
0: there, you're tasting Riesling, and
1: what's going through your mind? It kind of uh, was a a renaissance of uh, Riesling for me, because when I had first gotten into wine in the wine business, I uh, was really into German Riesling and Alsatian wines as well. And that's kind of what my palate liked and what I enjoyed drinking. And as I got more and more working with the auctions, just through osmosis and exposure, I was more into Bordeaux and Burgundy. So I think this was right around the time prices were getting fairly high. Uh, for Bordeaux and Burgundy, and uh, I think things are very cyclical. You know, after five or six years of doing a lot of Bordeaux and Burgundy stuff, uh, I was really intrigued by the by the German wine scene. Not only by the quality of the wines, but also that things were changing so much. Besides the uh, traditional Pradicate wines, of Cabinet Spätlese and Auslese, um, the uh, Trocken and Fine Herb uh, dry wines and off dry wines and Grosses Gevex were all pretty new categories, so it's like these legendary wine regions of the Mosel and the Rheingau and the faults and the Naha are basically rewriting all their rules, which is, you know, something that never happened in Bordeaux or Burgundy, <laughs> you know, it, it, it is what it is, you know, they're not going to start growing uh, different grapes or drastically changing things. They're not like, yeah, Bordeaux, why don't we do some Auslese? Uh, yeah, exactly. merlot you know, little to the market. Yeah, a nice off-dry style. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but so... What was that like in the early days? Because now, a lot of times over here, I mean, you know this better than me, but a lot of times people are like, oh, in Germany, they drink drying now, and they don't really drink the traditional wines. And we actually drink a lot of the more traditional off-dry wines here in, in the export markets. When things were just getting going in the in terms of the dry wine market, what what was the word around town in, in a place like Mainz?
1: Uh, in Mainz, yeah, it was, it was definitely very uh, kind of shocking to me five or six years ago because we didn't have the selection of dry wines that we have in in New York now. Uh, So it took some getting used to and uh, some palate calibration because i had been used to the sweeter styles and um, was with residual sugar. And um, also the winemakers were kind of still some of them in the early days of converting. So uh, it's been interesting over the last five or six years to see the massive improvement uh, of quality and consistency that more and more growers are making top dry and off dry wines. You think there has been improvement? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, You can argue about which vintage is better and that, but overall, I think, um, especially looking at the second and third tier producers, um, which don't get exported as much, um, there's been a, a tremendous rise in, in, in quality throughout Germany that um, it, it's even spending two months a year there. It's very difficult to keep up
0: with. So you did go kind of in short order from a guy who was like, oh, there's an auction or something I could attend to resident of Velen, where you have an apartment now and travel and spend a
1: couple months a year. Uh, how did that progression happen? Uh, well, eventually after the first tasting in Mines, I asked, hey, when's the next tasting? And They're like, oh, come to this tasting. And there's like... Oh, and then there's the wet auctions. I'm like, wet auctions? What are these? And they're basically auctions uh, similar to Hospice de Bone, except not for charity because they're the young top wines of each producer in each region. So there's four auctions in four days uh, directly from the producer of young wines, like gold capsules and special formats and special bottlings. And, uh, and so I went to those, and then I bought some wines there. And I was like, oh, great. What do I do? So I was actually looking for... Uh, a wine storage facility, and the concept doesn't really exist in many parts of Germany like it does here. And what few um, sources I found were a a bit expensive. And I mentioned this at a, a dinner casually with some German friends in the business, and they're like, oh, well, for that much money, you can get an apartment here. I'm like, well... Kind of used to New York prices and even backing out New York prices. I was like, well, wouldn't it be at least five or 600 euros a month? And they're like, oh, no, no, you could get a nice little place for much less than that. I was like, after many drinks, I was like, fine. If you can find me a place less than 300 euros per month and you think it's good and nice, I'll, I'll take it sight unseen. Several months go by and I'd forgotten completely about this, but uh, Germans are very determined. Uh, my friend called me out of the blue. And said, like, oh, Justin, I found the perfect apartment for you. And I was like, oh, well, I'm in the cellar right now, which I'm not. I have bad reception. I'll call you back. And, of course, he called me back several times. He's like, oh, you said you were going to take this apartment. So it's like, oh, I guess I got to take the apartment now. So uh, You're, like, trying to dodge
0: it. You're like, oh, yeah, dude, can't get your call down here. Sorry.
1: That was the Riesling talking, you know. Right, right, right. We were all supposed to forget what happened that night, or at least most of it. So I was kind of in a a conundrum because it it was not – A little bit of money. It was cheap, but it wasn't a little bit of money simultaneously. And so how do I phrase this to my girlfriend that uh, we just made a several thousand dollar a year purchase? So I decided to print out a picture of the apartment and draw a heart around it and give it to her as a Valentine's Day uh, present and wrote, wish you were here on it. And uh, I said, this will either go really well or really bad. And thankfully, it went really well for many reasons.
0: (laughs) And how long have you been
1: uh, traveling back and and staying there? Uh, Almost three years now. And what's that experience been like? Uh, It's been a great second closet. It's been a great second cellar. It's just really nice to have like boots and clothes and things. And when you collect things, and especially wineries, are always giving you literature. So you don't always have to lug everything back and forth. It's been a nice working office to have your own internet and printer and scanner and all that good stuff. So when you do these longer trips, uh, it's really not only from a cost perspective of the hotel, just nice to kind of have your... You know, home base of uh, operations to uh, keep your day job going while you uh, romance the Riesling. So what's Velen like? I mean, this is
0: a famous wine town. A lot of people know Velen or Soner from Prome and other producers. Right. What's
1: Velen like as, a, as the view of a resident? It's quite small, uh, quite sleepy, which is kind of nice, especially if you're trying to escape the hustle and bustle of New York. It's in the shadow of Burncastle, Castle, which is a lot more of a touristy town with uh, boat rides and, you know. Visits t- to the doctor? Yeah, typical, typical touristy stuff. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the Doctor Vineyard. You're in the doctor's office. Yep, exactly. Uh, so it's quite small compared to Burn Castle. It's pretty small and pretty quiet. There's JJ Prume, there's Vine Prume, there's Studert Prom, there's SA prune. So there's basically the Prume side of the track. And on the other side of the uh, town, there's the Kirpin. So my apartment is with uh, that I rent is from Martin Kirpin. So, we're on the Kirpin side of the town, and like there's the bridge that kind of on one side, there's the other and the other guys. So, is it like West Side Story? Like you go out and you see Katarina Proom like, snapping her fingers on the stoop? Like- <laughs> <laughs> I don't see her too often, but uh, it is kind of funny that uh, every wine town you go into, there's usually two or three names that kind of pre- predominate. Uh, like in Peaceport, there's always uh, a lot of hearts and Lenhart and uh, Kettern and then uh, and and then every little town has their own little mix because they're you know just a few few dozen houses, so it's it's really pretty. I mean, I remember first getting there and saying, "Oh well, it won't look like it does on the wine labels because you always see the traditional German label that has the steep vineyard and the cute little houses and the river right there, and it's like, nope, it's just like that, it's not any exaggeration, it's a very literal label." Because it's just amazingly steep, and when the way the river turns around you, you feel like you're almost in a cathedral uh, with arch ceilings. Because uh, the slopes just shoot up, and they, with the way the river bends, they kind of, you feel like you're like in a little amphitheater almost. It's just really, uh, really quite lovely, and um, really, really nice people, and really hardworking people. Because uh, those vineyards are tough. I mean, they people talk about steep vineyards and. Hand work and hand pruning, and but uh, in the middle Mosul and the traditional vineyards, uh, it's it's something else. You have guys, they
0: have they gotten you out there on the slopes?
1: A little bit, a little bit. I'm usually there in the summer when uh, the work is a little bit less, uh, and the helicopters do most of the spraying. But uh, yeah, we're maybe maybe in the in the future. Maybe I'll do a small project just so I get my hands dirty. So as things have come along, what what has your role been with Acker in terms of riesling? Well, when I first got to Acker uh, back again in 2010, mostly working for the auction side, uh, which we're predominantly known for, uh, the shop didn't have very much Riesling. A little bit of Donhoff, a little bit of JJ Prum, a bit of Trimbach, and a bit of zinn and a little bit of Selbach. That was it. And uh, it was kind of in a weird part of the store because of the shape of the bottles. They didn't have them in the racks. They kind of had them standing up by the whiskey bottles. So it was kind of... It's a small they, store. I mean, yeah, it's a yeah. small store, but I, at the same time, I felt like Riesling is being ostracized. So right, I said, right. like, well, perhaps. Uh, well, the
0: Austrian Rieslings can be ostracized. That's, that's yeah, exactly. Like, it's ostracized. just another yeah, it's, yeah it's
1: another exactly way you say it. That's, that's a, a, it's, I'm sorry, uh, and that's a good pun. Um, so I t- kind of took it upon myself to get a little more involved with the store and try to, from a, just from a, a global point of view, um, Ackers really no, well known for the auctions, and half the people don't realize we have a store. So I wanted to lift the prestige of the store-up, so I was trying to help do more tastings and improve the selection uh, of all the products, but in particular, I really focused on the Riesling, partly because it was so poor selection to begin with, but then also because it's really had become my passion over the last half decade. What was the customer reaction like? I think pretty good, and uh, especially with the tastings and especially doing the dry and off-dry styles because everybody thought Rieslings would be sweet or super sweet. And even people tasting some of the uh, cabinet and spate were surprised at the balance and that they weren't cloying and that uh, they were really uh, refreshing with the acidity. So uh, I think it was really uh, eye-opening and this kind of really corresponded with uh, Summer of Riesling and with Paul Greco and other people doing a lot of promotion. So it was kind of like a... A good time to expand. <laughs> What's the customer like who who comes in and,
0: and is a German Riesling connoisseur? I mean, who who buys these wines? Who is that person?
1: I think it's really diversified over the last three or four years in our store. Uh, originally, um, I think it was really just kind of wine geeks buying the less expensive ones and looking for something we didn't have just because there's so many different vineyards and producers. And then there were some of the trophy hunters that wanted like uh, a Donhoff Grosses Gewächs or a J.J. Prum uh, long gold capsule or something like that. So it was really kind of uh, on one extreme or the other. And it's been kind of really nice and rewarding to see um, we have our less expensive wines in the bins to actually have a dry and an off-dry Riesling be staple residents in the bin and be right there with the Sauvignon Blancs and the Chardonnays and selling Not quite as much, but much better than anybody would anticipate. And, you know, average, uh, quote unquote, average people that aren't lunatics like wine, like you and I, go there and not even hesitate or think or have to be hand-sold the bottles. Just they're reaching for their fine herb or they they know Trocken is dry now and they just, you know, they they reach for it for second nature. And uh, so that's been... uh, Uh, a really rewarding transformation to uh, not be uh, a trophy or not be just like, oh, well, what's a weird grape you never heard of type of thing.
0: And you started bringing in some stuff direct for the store. How did that come about and and what was was that experience like for you in terms of sales and in relations,
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, like most of my wine experiences going to Germany in the first place and getting the apartment, it was a happy accident uh, going over there more regularly. Uh, you know, the friendships tighten and you uh, realize the ups and downs and how difficult it is for a small producer that uh, wants to come into the U.S. market. Um, you know, Rudy Wiest and Terry Thies stables are pretty full. And then after that, just a lot of people are these are difficult wines to understand and difficult wines to sell. So for one friend in Germany and another in Alsace, um I looked very hard to find them both an importer and brought some samples over and took some people out to lunch and maybe it's that I'm just not the greatest salesperson in the world but you know we could people like the wines but they're like oh well the big companies are like well, how are we going to sell this and the small companies are like oh well we wish you did but we we don't have enough money to buy the wines from the producers we have already. So I said, well, I just I felt uh, almost obligated to try to really help them out because they're good friends and they're great wines. And they're, I said, worst comes to worst, uh, I said to my girlfriend, these will be our house wines if we can't sell them <laughs> over the next year or two. For, so, for the
0: next 300 years. Yeah. We're gonna be, <laughs> like, and she doesn't like it's a Verstermeeter. So I'd be drinking a lot of Verstermeeter. It's, and it's she'd a very big reasons.
1: Valentine's card with like yeah, exactly. a heart around a pallet yeah. of wine. The second bedroom is now full of 500 cases of wine. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we brought over... Uh, uh, a little fine herb, uh, Riesling from the middle Mosel, uh, Stafelterhoff to begin. And that sold really well. And that made me think of my Alsatian friends. So I said, well, Alsatian wines are even a little more tricky. So let's not do a full palette of one thing. Let's just do 10 cases of Gewurz, 10 cases of Pinot Gris, and so on and so on, and build a little mixed palette. And those wines sold even better than I thought. And uh, I was like, wow, this is great. And so you order a second palette because that. If your plate's empty, that's what you do. And of course, everybody has friends. And they said, "Oh, you brought in Jan's wines, or you know, we heard you're doing a good job and you're importing wines now." I said, "Oh, well, yeah, I guess so. Just kind of like I kind of have an apartment now somehow in Germany." <laughs> and added a couple more producers from Germany. Then we started going to Venom and Austria and made a couple friends there. And it's like I can't believe how good and how inexpensive these wines are. And I said, "I." I got to buy this gruner and then you have a producer f- <laughs> from austria sending you christmas cards every year <laughs> just delighted that they're um and they these guys hadn't even thought about selling in the u.s and uh now it's i can't uh keep it on the shelves so it's just one thing kind of led to another and and the great thing about the apartment in Valen it's quite close to the um Airport Frankfurt Hahn, which is the less expensive airport run by Ryanair, so you can get 20, 30 euro flights to Spain, Italy, France. Wow, that's uh, amazing, dude. And, and it's, yeah, exactly for little, what what goes for a bus around here. And so as much as we love Germany, it's just kind of we my girlfriend and I began taking little weekend trips here there and everywhere and and when you go there and you're like, "Oh, you're in New York. Like, how do I sell wines there?" and I'd be like it's almost like uh you feel almost obliged because you've developed these experiences with people and you go out to lunch, you go out to dinner with them, you see them a couple of years in a row and you see the family grow, how the son just started out and he was kind of like a punk two years ago, but now he's like serious in the vineyard and now he's working with the father and the grandfather or, or, or mother, as the case may be. And uh, you just really become entangled with the, the, the wines, the lives, and uh, the human element. And so so I get for being an old softie. Uh, <laughs> you start buying more and more of their wines, uh, not only to share them with other people, but selfishly when I'm in New York, <laughs> I like to drink my favorite Alsatian wine. So the only way I could really do it is by importing it myself. So I feel a little... Uh, selfish and egotistical like uh for instance they were saying uh prince when he was uh the music artist when he was at his high point he only listened to his own music for like years so now i'm kind of like that with my i was drinking when, only my own wine now <laughs> when i was at my high point i was also listening to prince only so yeah it's funny <laughs> was, how these things come together that, that was that a long
0: time ago however yeah, exactly <laughs> for him too
1: <laughs> so how big's the stable now i mean how many wines are you bringing in Uh, It's gotten to over 20 producers now from five countries, so it's kind of developed a life all of its own. And um, it's just been very enjoyable and uh, very complimentary. As the different producers, uh, a lot of times when I'm looking for a gift to bring when I visit them because they're always spoiling us, I'll bring another producer that we bring in from another country. Like, oh, I'm here in Italy, but like, how about this bottle of Burgundy? So. It's become like a nice little uh, international coterie of very small producers. So now it's kind of getting to the point where I have to do more planning and less buying wines from I like from people I like. So, And what do you see as the progression of that side of the business? I think eventually uh, it's going to be selling to more restaurants and retailers uh, in New York and also in different states uh, as there's more producers. And then also uh, just human nature. Uh, My first producer was probably delighted that they were selling one pallet a year in New York to one store. And then from there, you're like, okay, that's great, but you know, you're either growing or you're contracting. So it's kind of we're trying to grow.
0: And what is the outlook for German wine in New York? What is the the view on the street of a guy
1: who's hawking German wine at, at wholesale? I think it's an exciting time, but it's also a difficult time because a lot of producers are quickly, uh, not producers, a lot of importers rather, are kind of quickly adding a number of German wines to their portfolio, which is, is a good thing, but they're kind of doing it quickly, and these wines have their own language, really, and their own way of dealing things. So I don't know how many of the companies are going to be able to really communicate the magic of these wines effectively. So I think it may take a couple of years for things to sort out, but it's also exciting to see uh, newer companies like Von Bodem, Stevens Company come in and just focus on it as well. So I think there's a a need for both, but uh, I think, and also Rudy Vies and Terry Thies adjusting their portfolios and, and bringing in more of the dry wines, it's, it's a very good, very exciting time. But uh, with all these changes, it's a very con- confusing time, even for us who are, are fairly inside on the business. So I can imagine on the periphery, uh, there's still a lot of uh, education and tasting and just people getting used to things. I mean, it, even in New York, things take time.
0: <laughs> You're someone who's really impressed me just with the sheer knowledge of what you know about Riesling, Germany, and past vintages. And I was wondering if you might do us the favor of kind of a vintage summary, going back for a while, of standout vintages for you from, from Germany. I mean, what, what how should I sum up in my mind, uh, from someone who really knows, what's 71 like, 1971? Uh, what were the wines like then and, and kind of moving forward?
1: Yeah, I think 1971, uh, which we were both fortunate to taste together last year, Really, a benchmark vintage like the 1961 in Bordeaux, or um, 1990 was a great universal vintage in many countries. 1971 was kind of the beginning of the modern era of of German wines, and also a vintage that really stood out because uh, the late 60s and early 70s were very difficult times in the wine business. So, you had really great ripeness, but with great acidity and structure, and you know, just wines of impeccable balance, but with, with good concentration. And uh, I think at that tasting, uh, it was really, uh, the wines were over 40 years old, uh, still magnificent. Um, 1983, which we tasted recently together, was a good vintage, but not a great vintage. And the big problem there was there's a bit of rain in September, so there's a bit of dilution. And also that vintage got off to a bit of a late start. The the, the spring was quite, quite cold, so... Um, I think if people had waited a little bit longer as they do now, 1983 could have more potential. But in the early 80s, people had had so many disastrous vintages, you don't want to really take the chance and leave the grapes on too long and have no vintage. So as we taste in 1983, I think it's like a three and a half, four star out of five vintage, uh, just lacking a bit of concentration. And some of the wines seeming a little bit even more mature than the 71s were, even though they're 12 years younger. But still, you have to look at things in context that uh, there are a lot of disastrous vintages like 77 and 84 and a host of uh, mediocre vintages around 83. So it's all relative. Whereas, uh, as probably most of the listeners know, in the last 10 years in Germany, as in a a lot of Northern Europe, we've been really quite blessed with a, a string of great vintages since 2001. And it's just a matter of the style of the vintage or the quantity of the vintage, uh, or maybe this vintage is better for dry wines and this vintage was a little bit better for sweet wines, or this wine vintage is a little bit better in the Nahe or the Rheinhessen or instead of the Mosel. But any of the vintages in the last 10 years, I think people would have been ecstatic in the, the 60s, 70s, or early 80s to have. And uh, But going back further, I think uh, 1959 has to be a, a reference point vintage. Not too many of those wines kicking around, but uh, a really great vintage for like the Auslesa the and up Trockenbeerenauslese, and Auslesa, beer and Auslesa. Uh, in the 60s, 64, 66 were both pretty good, but getting a bit tired now. If you want to go back uh, further, 53, there were some magnificent wines and 49, uh, even though it was in the, the shadow of World War II, was great. And then if we're fast forwarding to the future, uh, 85, I think, doesn't get enough hype. I think as 83 is slightly overrated, I think 85 is slightly underrated. And similarly, uh, 1988 is a a slightly underrated vintage because it's in the shadow of 89 and 90. As most people know, 88, 89, 90 were pretty good in most of Europe. If you look at Bordeaux, Burgundy, Piedmont, Tuscany, Germany, those were Champagne uh that w- that was a nice little uh period to begin the modern era which is pretty good cuz 91 92 93 were fairly difficult uh in most places looking at the 90s after 1990 uh i really like 1995s some of my colleagues in germany are keen on the 94s and the 97s uh but that was kind of where we were beginning to have a little more consistency we're talking about good vintages and great vintages and vintage characteristics. One thing that has happened, partly due to nature and global warming, and also partly due to winemaking techniques and what people expect, is that uh, the wines are definitely getting riper and fuller and uh, with higher potential sugar. De- how much they ferment of it, you know, depends. But uh, there's definitely been uh, before 2001 and after 2001 is like a, a great line of demarcation of the. Uh, the lower and higher level of ripeness um i think uh, a lot of cabinets now are like spate laces back then and a lot of spate laces now are like uh back then as far as uh, how much extract and sugar and uh, everything you got in there
0: and between 2001 and now i mean how would you obviously it's a great run of vintages what what kind of stands out as as the different characters
1: of each 2001 is probably the best balanced, and i think we'll ultimately be the one that people talk about 20, 30 years from now, partly because it was the first one of this string of great vintages, but I think also because they they are the real deal. Most of the top wines right now from 2001 are still shut down. I did a 10-year anniversary tasting um, a couple years ago, and um, I think some of the participants were a little disappointed, and a couple of them were a little nervous. Are the wines over the hill? What, what happened? Where's the wine? I Do said, I need to flip my old ones? And I was just like, no, like just let give them a little time in the glass and come back to them and sure enough the wine's really unfolded and really developed and if anything they're they're too young but it's, it's a little difficult to do that at a tasting with small pours sometimes but uh, we exercised some patience and they did come around. 2002 I think is maybe slightly overrated. Um I really like some of the 2002s from the Rheingau uh, and the Rheinhessen so more on the Rhine side. 2003, I think people want to write off a little bit just because it was such a tremendously hot year. So when people think about 2003 in the Loire, Champagne, or Germany, people are like, oh, they don't have enough acidity. Uh, But even there, there are so many different types of acidity. The best 2003s in Germany have the right type of acidity, and you would taste more acidity. Than what the numbers are, you don't. You want to taste the wines first before you read what the acid and sugar levels are. I think always, but especially with the two thousand threes. And um, talking about our neighbors, the Prome, uh When we went to JJ last year, um, they like to open a lot of older bottles, and they are quite keen on the two thousand threes, and they were magnificent. And similarly, Zilliken just released some two thousand three Lace. and it's a, a wonderful wine. Wonderful wine, uh, showing really well. Um, in a time when a lot of uh, spate laces from good producers and good vintages tend to be shut down at at age 10, but showing no signs of tiring either. 2004 is a bit more tricky, cooler vintage. Uh, I I like a number of the wines, but it's more of like a a cabinet vintage. Um, There are some difficulties there, though, uh, in comparison. 2005, really good vintage, and this is like one of the first vintages where I think the dry wine winemaking technique and the dry wine climate kind of came together. So there's a, a number of, of, of good dry wines and grosses Quebecs kind of coming together there of, uh, the last decade, 2006 is probably the hardest. There was a, a lot of, a lot of trouble at the end of the vintage and there's a lot of the, the bad rot instead of the good rot at the end. Um, so I think, uh, 2006 is probably the, the, uh, the orphan vintage there, the, the one to stay away from, if you're looking at a wine list and you know nothing about German wine, probably don't go for the 2006 unless you have a independent opinion to verify the quality. But 2007, by the other hand, uh, a lot of people compared to 2001 as being perfectly balanced. I think it's probably a hair behind 2001, to be honest, but only time will tell. I'm a big fan of 2008, which was kind of really neglected, uh, partly because it became 2007 and 2009, which were ripe vintages that people quite liked. And also 2008 was released right around the time the the world came to the end for the first time in the last last decade with the economic crisis. So people weren't buying wines, and people were in a bad mood, and uh, it was between two better vintages. And you can't have three good vintages in a row uh, from a a marketing and selling point of view. But I really like 2008. It's a little bit cooler. Uh, a little less ripeness, but with great balance and great acidity. And really reminds me of some of the wines from the 80s. So I bought a lot of 2008s, but unfortunately, uh, my girlfriend and I drank most of them. But like the perfect cabinet vintage. I, I'm really a really big fan of the cabinet style. which is getting harder and harder to find because with all these ripe vintages like 01, 03, 05, 07, 09, a lot of people are making cabinet. But it's not really cabinet uh, when you taste it, it as either too much sugar or, or too much body or too much ripeness, you know, a cabinet should be low in alcohol and you know moderate sugar and lighter in body and just uh, a wine that can drink itself. Um, so a lot of the um, winemakers that I talk to intimately about their how they're picking their grapes are actually. Now, instead of hand selecting their Spate lace and Auslaysa, which was the difficulty in the 70s and 80s, we got to find grapes ripe enough to make oslasa. So you got to pick those special late harvest bunches. Now it's picking a little bit early or going through the vineyard specifically, just looking for the perfect grapes to make cabinet because with these hotter and hotter vintages, to make the perfect cabinet uh, is increasingly difficult, and uh, it's it's kind of disappointing. They really need to put, in addition to the minimums for these different predicates, cabinet, spate lace, and oslace. Uh, they need to put a maximum too, because if you reach for a cabinet because you want to have it with, uh, you know, some smoked fish or whatever you're having, and it's like a, a spate lace or even oslace quality, uh, it's like, yeah, I got more, but I I didn't want more. <laughs> So 2009, I think, is is great uh, vintage there, especially for the dry wines, again, similar to 2005, but uh, some of the wines are a bit over the top. Uh, Some people like that sort of thing. Uh, And speaking of over the top, 2010 was over the top with acidity and dry extract. Usually, the riper the wines are, the the less acidity you have, they're inverse to one another. But in 2010, uh, due to the climate uh, and the very late picking, you have tremendous acidity. And tremendous extract, and some Frankenstein wines, but also some magnificent wines, and I think some of the Spate Laces and oslaces will be wines that will last forever. Like when the cork disintegrates, you know, then that's when the wine will go bad. A big caveat on 2010 is that a lot of winemakers hadn't seen a vintage like that since the early 80s. So a lot of people were asking their father or grandfather how to make them, which was a good thing. But some of them got a little carried away with the process of deacidification, taking acidity out of the wine, especially with the drier wines. And to me, acidity is something you really shouldn't add or take away from a wine because it may taste okay and analytically be okay in the first year or two of its life. But uh, very quickly, these added components don't really integrate with the rest of the wine. And you can kind of, t- a wine tastes, a acidified tastes very stripped to me. And uh, either adding or taking away acidity, it's almost like bad plastic surgery. Like, you, you know some work's been done on this wine, you know, especially as they get older. Eleven uh, was a, a nice vintage, especially for the everyday drinking wines. But I think uh, these odd years always seem to be the hot years, so... Uh, there are a lot of wines that kind of had a, a, kind of some exotic notes to them, uh, like almost like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Um, so there are some, being the purest that I pretend to be, there are a lot of 11s. I just didn't care for the flavors, even though it's a sound wine uh, through and through. But it was a nice vintage because it was a, a little bit larger vintage uh, after 2010, which was a short crop. So it was, it was kind of good for the winemakers to make their, their Gutz wine or their Ortswine and their estate wines there every day. Kind of drinking wines and uh, get some money in the piggy bank, and I think twelve looks to be a great combination of things, and I'm very excited about twelves it's it's still uh, a little early even though we're picking thirteens already I know the the Germans like to show their wines very early in March April, and may uh, earlier this year, but the twelves are just kind of getting over here and just finding their own thing and i i'm I think twelve it's getting a lot of it's some of the wines are very good but it's not that consistent so the people who made great wines in 12 are fantastic and i'm still trying to get to the bottom of it exactly but there are a lot of things i tasted in 12 that i was just like well i kind of was hoping this guy would do a little bit more so i guess you can say that in every vintage uh we like to especially americans like to draw these uh sweeping statements about okay 2005 bordeaux buy it you know but and the truth of the matter is when you get the, you put the nose to the glass and the palate to the ground, uh, you know, uh, th- the wine uh, is the, will show its true colors. And while you've
0: been doing that, who are some of the people who, that have stood out for you in Germany uh, in that landscape? I mean, who are the personalities that you've met along the time where you've said, wow, that's interesting or
1: amazing or inspiring person? Stuart Piggott has been a, a great inspiration and in seeing him both in Germany and New York a couple times uh, and even though he's such a busy guy just some short conversations but just seeing him as a, a British guy he's moved to Berlin and then become like the expert and he writes the German he writes the uh, German wine article for like the equivalent of the New York Times in Berlin and he's a British guy doing that so I imagine if you had like a, a German or another Guy from another country come to another wine growing region doing that. It's just kind of uh, yeah. Winston Churchill was very opposed to that. Yeah, I remember pretty much. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's definitely caused a lot of political ramifications. But thankfully, there's been bigger problems to take uh, away some of the scandal. Um, I think uh, Anne Trimbach in Alsace. She is so knowledgeable and so generous, and her her uncle Jean as well. uh, As far as trying to think of people, people might actually know. And also people I don't import because that's a bit of a <laughs> yeah. a, a, bit of a conflict this of interest. This dude sold me three pallets, and I thought he was amazing for doing that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. He's the most nicest guy <laughs> on the face of the earth. Uh, there's a guy in who um, lives in Mainz, and I see him there because a lot of the VDP tastings are in, in, in mines because it's kind of centrally located between the wine regions and close to Frankfurt. And it's nice, like Frankfurt, because Frankfurt was kind of destroyed in the war, whereas mine still has some nice buildings in it. Uh, so his name is Valentino Brodbecker, and he does uh, a lot of uh, tastings and a lot of food and wine stuff. And then also he's good at ma- ma- uh, marrying the financial side with the, the romance side of the wine. So he actually um, uh, did the, brokered the deal of Hans Lang is a f- pretty famous wine grower in the Rheingau and a member of the VDP. And they sold because their daughter didn't want to be in the wine business. So he brokered that deal. But even before he did that big deal, I mean, he was just uh, very nice and generous when I didn't really know a lot of people in Germany. One of the things that's kind of struck me is that uh, when you look
0: back, like, to the Windows on the World uh, wine course book from, you know, 10 years ago, it talks about light and dry Alsace Riesling. Or when I was uh, working in the late 90s, I felt like there was – Uh, Gruner Veltliner, not super heavy style, available by the glass, dry Gruner or dry Austrian Riesling uh, at a lot of restaurants. It was very popular. Now I feel like with the onset or the development or the improvement of, of German wine, that category has really gained steam almost to the detriment of the other two, where I don't see as much Austrian Gruner on lists. Yeah. Um, I, I, there's been a lot of confusion about what's dry and what's not in Alsace, and it seems to have faded from the the landscape in terms of fine restaurants. Mm-hmm. Yet people get very, very excited about Keller and other producers, has that sort of uh, taken the stees or the, become the more popular thing as opposed to having a Gruner by the glass? Are people really
1: interested in Groscovox now? Or what's your view? Yeah, I think some of this is cyclical and people always want to do the new thing. And, and Gruner uh, is still popular, but uh, maybe um, I think in retail, we still do a lot of Gruner. Uh, but maybe uh, especially with the restaurant business is a little more trendy or maybe a little bit making the trends a little bit more. Uh, to a certain extent, so and also needing to change more because I think in retail, people kind of want to reach for their comfort wine. And restaurant, when people are spending money and uh, and more money than they're used to spending, they kind of want to be impressed and wowed and get something new. And then also in a restaurant too, you have the luxury if somebody doesn't like it, you can bring them something else. If I send somebody home with a bottle of wine and don't like it, and the shop closes at nine, it's they open the bottle at nine fifteen. You know, we're we're both uh, sol. But I think, yeah, the German Trocken is definitely making inroads uh, retail and also a restaurant as well. And I think Alsace has been, you know, as much as I love the wines, and I think we both talk about these being among our first loves of wines and a real identity crisis. And uh, partly due to the winemaking style, partly due to the consumer trends, and then also partly due to that the uh, global warming, while it's helped Germany uh, make more consistent wines year to year, um, It's almost too much of a good thing for Alsace, so you're left with, like, do we make a wine that's 15% alcohol, or do we make a wine that's 13.5% with lots of residual sugar? And, you know, at the end of the day, perhaps none of those are particularly appetizing aspects. What's going to
0: be the retail outlook or the auction outlook or just the general purchase outlook for German Riesling in this country in 10 years?
1: What's your feeling? I think it's made a big jump and now I think we're all kind of gathering all the pieces in to see how much of that jump was. So I think it's going to level off a little bit and grow, but grow a little more slowly than it has. And I think it's more, uh, we've kind of New York has kind of Riesling's made its mark. So now it's going, they've sent Paul and Stuart on a a bus ride through America (laughs) and the German wines USA. So now it's, you know, spreading literally and uh, through the rest of the country. Uh, But I think the, the growth will be, smaller in new york just because it's kind of it's made its mark and it, it, it it's it's filled some spots on the shelf and and whatnot but i think there'll be a, a little bit more of a bridge because right now you mentioned keller and so people are into keller and Donhoff and schaefer Frolick and some of the high-end Grosses gevex and then by the glass maybe some people are like oh i'm just gonna have a little trocken or a little fine herb a little dry or off-dry Riesling that there maybe there's a lot of middle ground and maybe some interesting producers making uh Erstelager Grosselaka wines um, in a dry or off-dry style that um, we haven't heard of before and maybe more a medium price point so instead of under 20 or over 80 which Keller would be over 80 and you know Joe Blow Trocken is you know under 20 Maybe there'll be some more interesting wines in that uh, that middle ground, which is always a difficult ground uh, to sell. I think uh, as the middle class evaporates, so there's the middle class of wines. But I think uh, I think that's something that we should all concentrate on: is, is look at th- that middle ground of, of good producers and rising stars making a wine that might retail for thirty or forty bucks, and try to try to get behind that uh, because you know there, there's always going to be the superstar, and there's always going to be the, the good house wine. But to, to try to find something in between, uh, I think that's where um, uh, we can cut our teeth as wine professionals and, and, and make our reputation. Justin Christoph of Ackermill, thank you very much for being here. It's today. my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose